I had a desire when I was a young man to go to the mission field. God ordered it differently. But not being able to go to the mission field, I dedicated my life to get other people to go. And I thank God for every missionary uh, that our own church has been able to see sent to the mission field. And we have followed them with our prayers, supported them with our gifts, and blessed God for what they have accomplished. I remember the first time I met our brother Bill Woods. He was a young boy. He was in short trousers. He was just a lad. Of course, I was only a lad then, too. I'm not that much older than him. You know that by looking at us. You might not realize that. But uh, God saved him and called him. And we remember the day he left us to go to Acre in Brazil. And then God gave him a vision of the lepers of Brazil. And he did a very difficult task. He entered the university graduated in medicine. It's hard enough to graduate in medicine in your own mother tongue, but to do medicine in a tongue that's different than Portuguese is some job of work, but God enabled him to do it. And then immediately he graduated, God opened a great door for him, not only among lepers in Brazil, but in India and in Africa. And uh, God has honored him, and the government uh, has honored him, in opening these doors for him. But uh, he's not coming tonight as a medical doctor. He's coming as a missionary. He's coming with one desire, that he might influence young people in this congregation to go and serve the Lord. I want you to be praying for him, that as he delivers his soul tonight, that we'll see many young people kneeling at the front of this church and saying, Here am I. Send me. God bless you, my brother. <clears throat> You'll not trip on it because you can turn it in. Put it just in under your coat there. In there. I'll do it for you, brother. I am among you as one that serveth. God bless you. That's it. It's a real privilege for me to be here this evening in the Martyrs Memorial. It wasn't part of my plans to return to Northern Ireland so soon after the short break that I had last year. However, I had been invited to do some eye work in the country of Bissau in West Africa, which was like Brazil, formerly a Portuguese colony. But to get there and to return to Brazil, there was no direct flight, so I had to travel to Paris, and thus I was able to break my journey before returning again to South America. It's a privilege for me to be here at this Easter time. God led me to Brazil in 1960, that's 20, 29 years ago, and I've had the opportunity of being home over the Easter period on two occasions during those 29 years. The last time was 12 years ago, and uh, so it's a joy to be back and to be able to participate in this missionary meeting and in this Easter weekend. We read this evening a very familiar story 
when Paul and his fellow missionaries sought God's guidance for their lives. And it seemed that every door was closed before them. We read that the Spirit of God closed one door after another. And we are reminded, of course, that God not only opens doors of service, but when we seek His will and His directions, He also closes doors and makes it clear when the step is not to be taken. And then, of course, when it seemed that Paul was at the crossroads and didn't know where to turn, then came a vision in the night. A man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. I was reading those words a few weeks ago and I thought of the opportunity this evening in this service and I prayed as I read that very familiar story and it seemed that there were things that I had never noticed before stood out of these pages. And first of all I noticed the assurance of the call of God. It reads that we assuredly gathered that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. Before they had been in doubt, shall we turn this way? Shall we continue in this pathway? But at this moment when God gave them the call, there was absolute assurance. Paul had seen the man. He knew the country, he recognized his identity, and he heard, come and help us. There was indeed assurance of the call of God. Many times young people will ask, what is a call to full-time service? What constitutes a call? to missionary endeavor. How is one called? And some people might think that it's necessary to sit back and wait like Paul for a vision in the night for God to step out at the end of the bed and call out audibly, I want you in such and such a place. Now we must remember that everything in Paul's life was different. When Paul was saved, he saw a light from heaven. He heard the voice of Jesus say, Why persecutest thou me? How are we saved? We hear the gospel preached. We hear our need of salvation. We recognize we can do nothing. And we yield ourselves to Christ. The only time I ever saw a light from heaven was the day my brother hit me on the head with a lemonade bottle. <laughs> but when I was a boy of 15, I heard the message. I realized my need of salvation. And I yielded and said, Lord, save me. A missionary call 
We need to see, we need to think, we need to realize the need. See something of the appeal that's being made. Come to Spain and help us. Kenya's calling. Cameroons, the south of Ireland, Canada, South America, and many countries across the world. We need to realize that we are nothing, that we can never be missionaries, that we can never preach the gospel. We need to yield and say, Lord, prepare me, mold me, make me, and teach me. Because God never calls us to the job we're fit to do, but God fits us to the job we're called to. There is no question when God called Samuel, he spoke three times, Samuel, and Samuel ran to the wrong person. And Samuel listened again and God called again and he said, Samuel a second time, and Samuel the third time. And that call was very clear in Samuel's heart. He knew, he said, Lord, speak, thy servant hears. The call was clear in Samuel's heart. When Moses rose up from the burning bush, he knew that God had called them without a shadow of doubt to return to Egypt and to lead out the people of God. When God called Gideon, he even given the opportunity to put out the fleece, but God confirmed in his heart that he was called. And my friends this evening, young people this evening, God needs to confirm in your heart the call of God. Amen. I was just a young Christian, saved a few months, and I attended the first missionary meeting I believe I'd ever been at. It was in the old church. It was a Christmas Sunday. Miss Molly Harvey from the Acre Gospel Mission was speaking. And it was a very uh, touching meeting. A meeting you'll never forget. I've never forgotten many of the things that Molly said that day. I can still remember. But you know, it was one of those unusual meetings that you could never forget. Well, how could you? You see, the offering was being taken up and Miss Harvey had made a very touching uh, appeal and many people were drying their eyes and Dr. Paisley looked over the poop and he didn't like the offering that was going around, so he stood up and he said, will you all quit your blubbing and dig a bit deeper? So how could you forget a meeting like that? But you know, I heard the need of Brazil at that meeting, and I resolved that I would go away and pray for Miss Harvey and perhaps help some way the work out there in Brazil. But it was a few months later, at another missionary meeting in the same church when Mrs. Jesse Eads was speaking. And God that evening put his hand in my life and I was sure and I knew that night that God was speaking to me just as I knew the night that I was saved. That God was calling me into full-time service. Young people this evening, make sure in your heart, is God calling you to Canada, to the Cameroons, to Crosscar, to Coleraine, to the Craigie Road, or wherever he's calling you? Is he calling you? Are you sure that God is calling you to work in an office? Are you sure God is calling you, that he wants you to spend your life 
working in the factory? Or is he calling you to full-time service? I'm glad today that I went to Brazil with that assurance that God had called me. Many times there have been dark moments, many days there have been problems to be faced, and I could look back and say, Lord, you called me. I'm here in your purpose, in your plan. The 14th of January, 1966, at about six o'clock in the evening, it was dark, my clothes were sogging wet, we had walked through the swamped forest, we had waded knee-deep in mud, we had swam where the forest was flooded, and we had walked for hours in the pouring tropical rain. And I lay down on the floor of the jungle, cold. It was about 12, 13 hours since we'd had anything to eat. And I could hear in the not very far away, a few yards away, the voices of the Juma Indians talking and laughing in their villages. I looked at the people who were with me, and the woodsmen had terror written across their faces. The last woodsman that had lost his way in the jungle and had gone into those villages without uh, planning with, by mistake, the Indians had taken him and they had taken their spears and pushed them into his eyes and scraped out the contacts of the sockets. And then they had taken their huge knives and cut off his hands and left him to die on the jungle tree. Another couple who were fishing by the river, not very far away from that area. The Indians came across them unexpectedly, and so many spears were passed through their bodies that those who found them in decomposition found them pierced literally to the floor of their canoe. I looked at Peterbo. He was a little Indian boy that we were trying to use from another tribe to make the first contacts with those Indians. His face also was written with fear. A few weeks beforehand we had gone to that very place and his mother had been with us and she had interpreted for us the marks that the Indians had cut on the trees. And they, she said the Indians are going to kill whoever passes these marks. We weren't there when it happened. But that little boy was there. He stayed behind with his mother in the village after we came out. And the Indians came in and slaughtered her before his eyes. And then he fled out to the river's edge. And I lay that night cold. We couldn't light a fire. We couldn't walk into the villages because it was getting dark and it would be the wrong moment to approach the Indians. And we wondered as we lay there in the long hours of the night and the mosquitoes chewing us, what would hold the next dawn? Would we all be alive the next day by six or seven o'clock in the morning? What would take place? You know, I thought to myself, what am I doing here? How did I get here? What's this all about? And then I reminded myself, that way back in the Raven Hill Road, one day in a missionary meeting, God had put his hand on me and he called me to preach the gospel to every creature, and that included the Juma Indians. 
And I was there because of God's call. And my friend, this evening, make sure wherever you're channeling your life, whether it be in secular employment, or whether it be in the ministry of the gospel, or whether it be to the mission field, be sure, mark it in your Bible, ask God to confirm it in your heart, ask God to give you that assurance of God's call just as he gave it to Paul and his companions. And then I saw another thing that stood out. And here there was not only an, insurer, an assurance of the call, but there was assistance to the church. The cry was, come over and help us. Come over and do something for us. Now sometimes we think that missionaries go to Brazil or to Kenya or to the Cameroons and from morning to night the only thing that they do is stand in the market and preach or walk from house to house giving out tracts. But sometimes that's not all the important part of the work. As Christian workers we are called to serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many times we are called simply to do little things that may mean a blessing and a help and the spread of the gospel. Practical things. An Indian from India one day was asked, had he ever heard the gospel? He said, no, but I've seen it. What do you mean? Well, he said, I've seen a man who was different. I've seen a man whose life spoke of the gospel. In the town of Bogodowaki, where our mission had worked for many years, there was a dear believer there that was very keen to win her neighbors for the Lord. And Donna Maria Crenci, one day, she went into her next-door neighbor and she said, you know, the best meeting of the whole week in our church is the Wednesday afternoon women's meeting. And it's only the women and the mothers that are there. And the messages are directed especially for the women. And she said, you should go along, it would be a great blessing for you. And that lady said, you know, Donna Maria, I couldn't go to the meeting. You know that very well. I have to wash clothes every day to, to help sustain my children. And I have to be here to iron the clothes every afternoon so that in the evening I can take them back and get some money in order to, to uh, continue the buying of the food and things I need for the children. And Donna Maria said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. When it comes meeting time this afternoon, you go to the meeting. And I'll stay at home. And I'll stay in your house. And I'll iron the clothes for you. Now she missed the meeting that she loved so much. And she spent the afternoon with the sweat pouring over, over a hot iron, ironing shirts and ironing clothes for her neighbor while her neighbor went to the meeting. And when the next Wednesday afternoon came, she said, you go to the meeting, I'll iron the clothes. And she did that week after week until that woman found the Lord as Savior. You see, it was doing something practical that was the opportunity. There are many countries today where missionaries are no longer welcome, but there are opportunities for 
teachers or nurses or agriculturists or other uh, professions to go in. And while they're there, they have the opportunity of ministering and working with the church. The Cape Verde Islands was also a colony formerly of Portu Portugal. And our good sister, Mrs. Eads, or Jessie Munn, as she was better known in Belfast, was a missionary there for many years. And one day, a little black boy in his bare feet came to her in her Sunday school, and he was in some kind of need. I don't know what the problem was. I don't know what was his, his need. But Jesse did something for him that day. Perhaps it was a few coppers, a few coins that she put into his hand. Perhaps it was a shirt or something that she'd given to him. Or perhaps she just simply lifted him up in her arms and, and gave him what we call an abrazo in Brazil, embraced him and said, now don't be crying. And, and, and she helped him in some way. She's with the Lord today. Some time ago, Guinea-Bissau, also a Portuguese colony, sought independence from Portugal. And war broke out, and the leader of that war was a communist and sought the help of Russia. And that country became a communist country. It became difficult for the Roman Catholic Church in the early days. But the new president, Luis Cabral, said that one thing he would maintain, he wanted the evangelical missionaries to stay in that country. And he favored the missionaries in that country. And the work of God has prospered and churches has been formed and, and the word has been preached right across the country down through the years. And nobody could under, understand. Right today they even have a program on the communist radio. Every Sunday they can preach the gospel for an hour. In a communist country. I had the opportunity to visit Angola a few years ago and see the people there. They, they couldn't study. They couldn't go to school if they were Christians. The, the young men that were discovered they were Christians were taken out of the, the, the university and put into the front line of the battle. And the churches are being closed. And pastors are being put in prison. But in this other country, the gospel was being preached. Why was the difference? One day, somebody get near enough to the president and ask them, Why do you favor the evangelical missionaries? He said, Well, I was brought up in the Cape Red Islands. And when I was a little boy in my bare feet, an evangelical missionary from Ireland gave me a great favor, did something for me. And I never forgot that thing that she did. Amen. And because of what someone did to a little boy in her Sunday school, today a whole country is open for the gospel. Amen. Have you ever thought what you could do for the Lord? Have you ever thought what you could give to the Lord? Have you ever thought how you could be praying for these missionaries that you've heard tonight? This tremendous problem in in, in Kenya, where the churches are closed, but God has said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Can you do something to help? You know, I could never be a free Presbyterian minister. I was never called to be a free Presbyterian minister. 
I don't think I could be a missionary in Cork either. I've followed the work of our brother there. I've listened to tips of the other meetings. I've followed the work of our sister in, in uh, Kenya and our friends in Spain. And I'm glad the Lord has called me to Brazil because it's an easier country to work in. But you know, one time I was in a meeting down there in Bellamina. And the Lord spoke to me about a young man that was present in that meeting. And when the meeting was over, I went over and I said, listen, what are you doing about your O-levels? What are you doing about getting into the training college? He said, who are you talking to? I didn't know him. I'd never met him. I said, I wasn't talking to anybody. But the Lord was talking to me in the meeting. And I felt led to talk to you. Oh, he said, I can't, I've given up. I can't get through history. I said, well, that's interesting because I know a history teacher and the martyrs that could help you. And we got him in touch with Mr. Innes and they studied and worked and coached. And then one day he told me, yes, I've got through my history exams and now I can go to, to the Whitfield College of the Bible. He said, how am I going to get, go there? I'm not going to be able to work. I'm not going to be able to, to keep on my job. And you know, the fees are a thousand pounds a year. I was just getting ready to go back to Brazil. He said, you've got to tell me what to do. He says, after all, you've got me into this. <laughs> and I said, well, brother, I'm going to give you a hundred pound every year towards your fees. I'm going to ask the Lord for a hundred pound every year towards your fees. And I'm going to ask for nine other people to give a hundred pound every year. And the way out there in the headwaters of the Amazon, and the way out there in the Acre, every year I prayed, Lord, send me that hundred pound that's coming near feed time. And he never failed. And I said, Lord, don't let him fail his exams because I want them through as quick as possible. I don't want them repeating any years. It's a selfish prayer. I couldn't be a free Presbyterian missionary, but I could pray and I could give. Have you thought of these young people that are training for full-time service? These people that are going out to, to, to Cameroons, what they're going to need? Have you thought of what you could do? Are you doing something practical? Something that's concrete? Are you sure that your money's being channeled into the right channels? Have you prayed how the Lord should have you give? Some years ago, I was traveling back to Brazil and I went for a couple of weeks to a leprosy hospital in the States. At that time, you could take 50 pounds out of England and that was all. And I had been there about two weeks and my 50 pounds had gone. The last weekend, I spent in New Orleans in the home of a very fine Brazilian couple. And uh, they said to me, listen, we want you to meet them. We've invited them to our home this afternoon so that you can meet them. A very generous man from Texas who helps missionaries all over the world. At that stage... I had six dollars left of my 50 pounds. That dear man from Texas came in, he asked me all about Brazil, the work that I was doing, we talked about it. The Brazilian couple had no money to put in their car, to take me, to put gasoline in their car to take me to the airport the next morning. And so they asked the Texan, would he drive me out? And while we were driving out, he said, you know, last year I gave 23,000 dollars to missionary work. And he said, the Lord has put it on my heart to help you. 
And I said, Amen, Lord. That's six dollars. <laughs> if I have excess baggage to pay at the airport, I won't even be able to pay it because I've got six dollars. And then the Texan turned to me and he said, You see that big parcel in the back seat? Well, that's 36 brand new beautiful books in English on Baptist missions in Brazil. It was colored pictures. There were, I think they were $10 each. And he said, I've bought them as a present for you. Now, I got out in Miami airport, and I thought I was traveling that same day, so I went to the snack bar, and I had a cup of coffee and a sandwich because I was quite hungry. And then I checked into the Varig Airline Company, the Brazilian Airline Company, and I discovered it was about 10 o'clock on Monday morning, and I discovered I was traveling at midnight on Wednesday. And I was standing in Miami airport. By that time, I had $4.50 and 36 books on Baptist missions in Brazil. <laughs> and you know, for three days, they almost pulled the arm out of my socket, trailing them around the airport. And when it came to getting on the plane, well, I, how could I take all those? Nobody in Brazil could read them anyhow. They were in English. And he had spent, what was it, $360 just buying those books that were no use to me. If you ever go to Miami airport and find a book sitting on the seat, Baptist <laughs> Missions in Brazil, you know who left. I don't want you to think I'm ungrateful. But you know, I had $4.50 for three days. And you know, if I'd had that big fella, I'd have hit him with his books in Brazil. <laughs> Listen, friends, are, are you sure you're giving your money? Are, are you helping someone? Are you doing something concrete? Do you pray, Lord, what will I do with my tithes and offerings, my gifts, my life? Be sure it's being channeled in the right way. Doing something for the Lord. A few weeks ago, a little lady called Donna Domingos was brought into the room where I was consulting out there in Bissau, away in the interior of the country. I wasn't really very far away, about four hours away from where our sister Evelyn Compton is working, but I wasn't able to get there because I had so much work I couldn't take the time off. And this little lady came from a very simple African home, a very poor. Her son brought her along. He was wrapped in just a piece of old blanket and she wasn't uh, dressed in much more. I spoke in Portuguese and asked a question and then somebody, the nurse who was with me, translated into Creole and then somebody else translated into Fula and then somebody else translated the question into Pepel or Balant or some other language. The lady replied in her own language, it was translated into Fula and then it was translated into Creole and then it was translated into Portuguese. The time I got the answer back I forgot what it was I'd asked her. <laughs> but you know I only had to look at her. And she was as blind as a bat. I think four or five years she hadn't seen a thing. And I was glad the Lord gave me a ministry of doing things for people. A few days later, her son came to visit her in the hospital. And I called him in. I put my hand over his mouth so that he couldn't speak. And I made signs at him to stand there. And I took the dressing off her eyes. And then I stood back. And she blinked for a moment or two, opened her eyes, and she started to shout, me fitch, me fitch, me fitch. And I asked, what does she mean, what she's saying? And again, that whole process, and then it came back to me, she's saying, my son 
my son, she could see him. I was glad I could do something to help someone like that. I could do it because people in this church give me the instruments, did something for missionaries, something practical. Give me the microscope that was with me there in Africa that I could use to operate on her. I have people from the martyrs that helped that woman to see. Yes, there was assistance to the church. And you know there was abiding in Christ. When Paul arrived in Macedonia, we read that he abode many days. And then when we read later on that that uh, girl possessed by the evil spirit also, she challenged him many days. He didn't just rush in. There was an abiding time before he preached the gospel. Now when I think of abiding... That very word itself, it it sounds to me, it it brings a feeling to me of resting, of refreshment. We sing, abide with me, fast falls the evening tide. And if Christ is abiding with us, then the darkness is nothing. And there is a great sense and a great need for missionaries, for missionary candidates, For people in the front line of the battle to have the opportunity to have the moment of rest. To have a little bit of comfort, a little bit of relaxation. You know, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, bring the cloak, I need proper clothes. He said, bring the parchments, I need proper preaching materials. But he also said, bring the books, I wonder what the books were. I've often wondered if it wasn't the tent maker's handbook or the Hebrew edition of the reader's digest or something like that. Because you see, we forget that missionaries very often are under great strain and something is needed. We need to understand that missionaries need sometimes relaxation, rest. One lady who supported the work of our mission for many years was talking to Miss Molly Harvey and uh, in the course of our conversation Molly was talking about out there in Brazil and she said you know there we were we were sitting talking the leg of my chair broke and I went flat on my face on the floor and the lady who had prayed for and supported her for years stood up and she said do you, do you actually mean to tell me that you missionaries have chairs to sit on I never heard the like of it I thought you were prepared to sacrifice everything and she was angry that Molly had a chair to sit on and I want to tell you Molly's chairs were hard old cane chairs you wouldn't have given them house room in your house but some people seem to think that missionaries should lie on the floor and missionaries should sacrifice everything a young missionary came down from the United States to work at Amazonas and uh, his plane was held up overnight and the airline company put him up in a beautiful hotel and he arrived in Brazil he said you know there I was in this beautiful room with carpets on the floor and two big double beds he thought that's too much for a missionary so he said I slept on the floor all night (laughs) well I looked at him I said you old fool if it had been me I'd have slept on one bed for a couple of hours and then moved into the other (laughs) but you see I had been instilled in his mind that missionaries couldn't have things to bring them comfort and relaxation. When these dear people to go out to the Cameroons 
I wonder would they ever like to sit back on an evening and listen to some nice music? Would they have the opportunity? I wonder when the mosquitoes are biting around their legs and they're trying to write a letter or trying to study the language. If, if they had a fan blowing on their legs, it might blow them off a little bit. I wonder when they've had a tired and a frustrating day, if they had something to read that would turn their minds off the circumstances and turn their minds off the happenings of that day. Yes, there was abiding, there was resting. But there was not only abiding in that sense. They waited and waited until the right minute came and then they laid one woman to the Lord. Can you imagine Paul sending out his prayer letter and saying, We've been here for many days. We've been here. God called us here. And we've saw one person come to the Lord. Because when a missionary goes to the mission field, if he comes back and said, I didn't see anybody one for the Lord, he's a failure. He's got to come back and tell of revival. We expect him to come back and tell of hundreds of souls being saved. And that isn't always the case. But we expect it. But God calls us to sow the seed. Amen. The reaping is His concern. Right. The salvation, the building of the church is His responsibilities. It is required of a servant that he be found fruitful, successful, popular, gifted. No, that he be found faithful right. in preaching the word. 1961, James and Dory Gunning from Northern Ireland and Hazel Miskimmon, who was saved through Dr. Paisley, returned to Brazil for another term of service. They traveled out on the same boat as a young couple from England with the New Tribes Mission, Tony Poulston and his wife. And Tony and his wife went almost immediately to work with the Amami Indians in the north of the Amazon Valley. And they are still there tonight. Two years later, they were joined by the Borgmans. Now the word of God says that he that goes forth and weepeth bearing precious seed. And those couples went forth weeping. The, the Poulstons lost their 12-year-old boy to infectious meningitis. Way right there in that Indian village... The Boardmans buried their little boy of six years of age after being bitten by a poisonous snake and died a horrible death. And those two couples have given 28 years. They have translated the word of God. They have preached to the Indians. But as yet, there hasn't been a break. And not one of those Indians have come to know the Lord. And those people are godly people. They've wept, they've prayed, they've given their lives. They've sacrificed their children's lives. What do you do in a circumstances like that? How do you come home and tell your congregation? Listen, friends, there was abiding in Paul's ministry. Oh, he had built up churches and other places, and then he was called to, save, to lead one woman to the Lord. But perhaps that woman was a strategic woman in the Lord's plan. I wish I had time tonight just for us to think of how the Lord has used women in his work across the mission field. But we must finish. And then there was acceptance and communion. 
You see, it was a man that called Paul to come over and help. But Paul ministered to the women. He had to change his vision. He was called to help the men, but when he got there, it was women that he was called to minister to. There was a group of women who prayed. And he had to accept their way of doing things and their culture. It's still the Jewish culture to pray standing. But we read there was a group of women and he sat down with them in the place where prayer was wanted to be made. That was against his culture. That was against his, his upbringing. You had to stand to pray, but those women sat to pray. So he sat with them. He sat where they sat. And there's something else about this acceptance. He went to, to the big city. He was informed about that city. He knew which city to go to. When God called him to Macedonia, he didn't go to the smallest and the, the most backward place. He went to the big city. He had information. And you young people that are interested in missionary work, get informed. Get interested in missionaries. When God called me to be a missionary, I was about 15. I went home and told my parents, I'm going to the mission fields. And my father looked at me and said, you'll be lucky if you ever get as far as the potato fields. I went to my pastor and I said, Dr. Paisley, uh, the Lord has called me to be a missionary, so uh, I'm going to leave school and go to Bible school. He said, you're going to do no such thing. And I thought, that's funny advice for a pastor to give. Here, I want to be a missionary. He said, you're going to finish your schooling, you're going to finish your senior, you're going to get involved in Sunday school work, you're going to get involved in the work of the church, and you're going to prove down through the next couple of years that God has called you. And during those years I got informed, every book that the library had in, in Library Street or downtown on Brazil, I read it. Every missionary that came from Brazil, I went to hear them and hear what their experience was. I wrote to missionaries. I prayed for missionaries. I got involved in missionary prayer meetings. I got involved in supporting missionaries. And young people, you need to be informed. There needs to be that, that acceptance, preparation to step into a different culture and a different way of life. Moses was a little boy born into a Christian home. He didn't have much else in life as a start because he was born with a congenital heart disease and needed surgery. His parents lived in a village called Kumaru out there in West Africa in Guinea-Bissau. And they had one great thing in their lives, they loved the Lord as Savior. But both mother and father were terribly deformed by leprosy. They had no means in that country, there's no means of doing cardiac surgery. And with great care they brought up their little boy and they brought him to church and they brought him up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord, taking great care with respect to his condition. Praying always that one day the door would open for him to travel to Portugal, the nearest place where he could have the surgery that he needed. He was 17 a few weeks ago. The plans had already become made. He was to travel to Portugal on Thursday. His passport had been obtained. People had worked, people had prayed, and the government of his country, the Ministry of Health, had agreed to pay his passage money to Portugal. What was going to happen to him when he got there would be another story. 
He didn't have shoes, but his brother worked downtown, and he said, I'll give you my shoes, and I can go to work in my flip-flops. His sister had been to the Bidjigo Island. She said, I've got a suitcase, I'll give it to him. Somebody would give him a shirt, and somebody else might get together a few uh, notes of their money to, to give to him. And everything was arranged that Moses would travel. But on Sunday, he went down with fever. He was due to travel on Thursday. He was rushed to the emergency hospital between inverted commas in that city. He lay on a stretcher for a couple of hours. The doctor on duty was too busy or wasn't interested, and he died unattended. I went into that home on Monday afternoon. I looked round. The floor was the dirt floor, the walls were mud, the roof was just a little bit of, of uh, stretched roof, is that what you call it, palio we call it, thatched roof. The parents were sitting there in their deformity and their disease and their poverty. The body was lying wrapped up in some sheets and blankets. There was no wood available nowhere to make a coffin. So he would be buried just wrapped up in his in those blankets. They were from the Belanta tribe and it was their custom to bury right there in the living room. But because they were Christians, he was going to be buried outside the house. And that was a tremendous testimony in that area, that he wasn't going to be buried inside the home. Now when I went into that home, what could I tell those people? What could I say to them as I looked at them in their tragedy, in their sorrow, in their poverty, in their deformity? I could only take that twisted hand in mine of that broken-hearted mother and hold it to my face. I could only put my arm around that father and tell him I was sorry that his son had gone. But I want to tell you, friends, I rejoiced at the same time. I was thrilled to find a family that away there in the heart of Africa, in the heart of Guinea-Bissau, that in the midst of their tragedy and their sorrow, could turn to me and say, but our son is with Christ. He's with the Lord. Oh, they were sealed by God's grace. I could sit with them in communion. I went to their church the next evening. I went to their church the next Sunday evening. They sang in Portuguese for me. Although their meetings were all in, in Balanta, they sang, doesn't matter what church you belong to. Just as long as for Calvary you stand, no me importa the king to is. Se a sombra do calvário estás, tu és meu irmão, me dá-te a tua mão. Oh, I rejoiced with them as I sat with them of Christ and his salvation. There was communion, there was acceptance as Paul went into these people. We don't go to Brazil to tell the people we have better ways than your ways. We go to tell the people of Christ. We don't go to Africa to tell the Africans... Why do you come to the meetings with dirty clothes? Those people where I was, maybe they'd never even seen a bar of soap in their lives. In their little houses, there was nothing. They didn't know what toothpaste was. How could I condemn them if they didn't have water in their villages? If they had to walk for miles to get water? Yes, there's got to be acceptance. And then there was ability in Paul's part to suffer in the gospel. Ah, they were beaten, they were whipped, and still they sang. 
Listen, friends, if God is calling you to be a missionary, remember these things that I've told you. Get involved in God's work. Support, give, do something for God's work. But prepare yourself that it's not an easy road. But thank God it's a victorious road. Amen. I'm only sorry about one thing as I look back over almost 30 years. I wish I had the assurance that I had another 30 years. I have stood in the markets in Senegal and looked around as the mosque sounded out the gong and all of a sudden thousands of people around me have bowed down and turned their faces towards Mecca and worshipped in their Islamic faith. And I've said, oh Lord, if only I could come to work in this country. I walked through the streets of Vindy with their teeming millions and looked round as they turned their prayer wheels, looked round as they reverenced their cows and their animals, and I thought, oh Lord, if only I could work in this country. I've just come back from West Africa, and I've said again, oh Lord, if only I could come back again, if only I could work in, in Bissau, there's such a need, there's so much to do. Those people out there in Bissau, I believe, they'll probably do the same thing in Liberia where David and Maud worked for many years. The, the Belanta tribes people, they're nomads, they, they move about from one place to another. And when their children are about two years old, they take a sharp knife and they cut two dark, dark, deep marks on each side of the face. And then as those marks begin to heal, they sort of push them apart and they make sure that they leave two wide scars down each side of the face. And no matter where that child goes, he's identified. Everybody knows immediately he's Belanta. When they walked into my consulting room, I didn't need anybody to translate or tell me where he was from. I knew immediately he's Belanta. He's got the marks. May God tonight cut deeply into your life. May there be a mark, young people, on your lives tonight that will, throughout the rest of your lives, mark the calling of God. May you hear from Africa, from South America, from India, from South Ireland, from Germany, from Spain, from Portugal, God's call, come and help. And may you say, yes, Lord, here am I, send me.